Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, auditing the government's pandemic response. Why did the government waste so much and make Canadians pay the price? And I can assure all Canadians that we are on top of this. The Auditor General found millions of doses of vaccine went to waste and billions of dollars went to people who shouldn't have gotten benefits. Just how much was wasted and how much money can the government claw back? We'll dig into that with AG Karen Hogan. Then Canada remembers. 33 years ago today, 14 women were brutally murdered at École Polytechnique in Montreal. We remember the day with a woman who survived the attack. Plus, a major backtrack. The wording of the legislation appeared unclear to our caucus members, so they asked for some revisions, and I was, well, I was happy to accept them. Danielle Smith defends her decision to walk back cabinet powers in her controversial Sovereignty Act. The press gallery digs into the debate. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. According to the Auditor General, there is $4 billion of known waste, another $27 billion of suspected waste. There is $60 million of spending that's under criminal investigation. There were uh, 190,000 people who quit their jobs and therefore were not eligible to receive the CERB benefit, but did anyway. They even sent the CERB to 1,500 prisoners. We as a parliament approved an attestation-based approach. We knew from the beginning there would be post-payment verification. We are working methodically through that. Billions of dollars in COVID-19 benefits went to people who shouldn't have gotten it, and millions of vaccine doses went to waste. That was the big takeaways from two major reports by Canada's Auditor General. While the federal financial relief was sent out quickly, it meant that officials didn't verify to see that people were getting the checks and that they were eligible for that type of help. As a result, $4.6 billion was sent to people who shouldn't have gotten the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or CERB, and the wage subsidy. The AG also flagged another $27.4 billion in benefits that should be investigated further for potential ineligibility. The Auditor General also looked at the vaccine procurement process. You'll remember there was a global race to make the vaccines and then get them into each country. According to Karen Hogan, Canada managed to get 169 million doses between December of 2020 and May of 2022 when this audit ended. Of those, 84 million doses went into Canadian arms. Now, 15.3 million doses were donated to other countries, while 13.6 million doses expired before they could be donated or used. There's a lot to get to and a lot of questions here. So joining me now is Canada's Auditor General, Karen Hogan. Nice to have you in studio. Thank you for being here. Now, when these programs, the financial programs, were created, they were done with a lot of haste. The government even admitted that they were basically flying the plane as they were building it. So given all of that, was there a potential for them to actually put in controls to avoid some of this wastage back then? So it's interesting that you brought it up. Going back to 2020, early 2020, is really hard for so many people. And it's important to go back and think about what we were living through mm -hmm. at that time. And the government made a decision to um, adopt international best practices in the time of an emergency, which means that they limited the prepayment controls, relied on personal attestations in order to get support out to individuals and businesses quickly. 
Um, what that comes with, however, is the need to have really comprehensive post-payment work. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where my concerns lie in this, in this area is that they're just not, they don't have a comprehensive rigor enough, enough plan in my, in my view, uh, based on the fact that there was such limited prepayment control. Now, there's a graphic that shows some people the Canada Revenue Agency did manage to recuperate $2.3 billion in overpayments as of this summer. There's another $27.5 billion that you flagged to, in, uh, that went to individuals and employers and that's needing further investigation, including $15.5 billion that went through the wage subsidy program. Tell me why there should be further investigation here. Mm-hmm. So what we looked at now was uh, whether or not payments uh, went to individuals and if the government um, was doing the work they promised to identify if people and businesses were eligible. So we flagged that there was $4.6 billion that went to individuals who were ineligible. Most of those related to really up at the front start end of the pandemic mm-hmm. where uh, people applied to 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 two streams to get the Canada Emergency Response Benefit and receive double payments, which right. makes them ineligible. So those are really clear. The rest is where we looked at all the other uh, programs and other eligibility requirements and identified that at least $27.4 billion requires further follow-up. Um, and that's because there was limited information gathered at the time of application, and now there is limited information available at the Canada Revenue Agency. And so they need to do the post-payment work in order to first determine if mm-hmm. individuals and businesses were eligible and then make the next decision about whether or not they take steps for recovery. So you say at least, does that mean it could go could be higher than that? Uh, yes, we've, we flagged in our report a few other areas where we just couldn't with confidence uh, put a dollar figure mm-hmm. around some of the eligibility criteria. And we've made all of those available to the Canada Revenue Agency. Um, now, there might be individuals and businesses that we flagged who are determined to be eligible, but without enough information, we couldn't really conclude. So that's why rigorous post-payment work is really needed. Is it too late? Because the government has already said in response it would not be cost-effective nor keep with those industries' best practices to try and pursue all 100% of the money that is, is flagged as outstanding. Do you think that this is a bit of a cop-out on the government's part? Well, we're not recommending that the government follow up with every single individual or business that receive funding. It's really those that have been flagged as having an indicator for ineligibility. Um, when you limit your prepayment controls, which is typical in, in a support program, you usually have rigorous prepayment controls and then still do some post-payment work. Uh, but when you limit prepayment controls, you really do need to have that rigor at the back end. And we're just not seeing their plans and the work done to date um, being mm-hmm. a, as comprehensive as it should be. Now, they do have a time time delay. Uh, there is legislation that limits the amount of time when the Canada Revenue Agency can flag to an individual or to a business that they owe monies back. So they do need to get uh, quicker on to their, to their work. We have a little bit of time left. I want to shift to the actual vaccines that you were looking at as well. We have another graphic for people here. At the end of the audit period, you found that Canada had um, upwards of 32 million doses estimated at $1 billion in inventories across the country. It says that these are, the majority of these are set to expire by the end of the year. Given that we have a less, less than a month left in this year and in this inventory of doses, should Canadians expect that these will just now be unfortunately wasted um, and that they, were, that they were vaccines that we've purchased but aren't unable to actually use? Mm-hmm. 
And so in that, in that audit, what we looked at was um, whether the departments worked together well, and we found that they did in order to ensure that the country had sufficient doses for every Canadian who wanted to be vaccinated to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, we did identify that 32.5 million in inventory. Um, and I asked the government what happened after our audit period, because it ends at May of 2022. And the government did tell us that some of those amounts um, have expired, some have been donated, and uh, almost half of them were actually sent to provinces and territories. Um, but there are other doses uh, waiting to be donated that could still expire. So this just points to our recommendation and the need to put, uh, put in all the functionalities around Vaccine Connect, the tool they use to manage right. vaccine inventory in order to minimize wastage going forward. Which you said was a good tool, but not effectively used. Well, they didn't implement all the functionalities. They delayed it. And now that many of them are in place, they're still using their manual workarounds. Um, and, and being able to have good visibility on, on needs and the expiry dates of vaccines would help minimize wastage in the future. Yeah. Auditor General of Canada, Karen Hogan, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate this. Thank you. Let's move over to a more somber day in Canada's history now. 33 years ago today, 14 women went to school where they studied engineering at École Polytechnique in Montreal. In the five o'clock hour, a man motivated by hate for feminists methodically targeted women in a shooting rampage. It shook this country and took the lives of those 14 young women. Two years later, December 6th, was proclaimed the National Day of Remembrance and action on violence against women. The group of survivors and their families have spent the last three decades ensuring that something similar never happens again. Paulie Sousouvien is the group that made up of those families who now advocate for gun control as well. And this week, gun control is front and center in the House of Commons, with the Liberals attempting to amend a bill originally crafted to ban handguns. But do those amendments go too far? How do you have a national conversation about a topic that polarizes Canadians? Let's find out. Joining me now is Pauline Souvien, spokesperson and Polytechnic mass shooting survivor, Nathalie Provo. Nathalie, thank you so much for making the time for us today. We really appreciate this. You were inside the school 33 years ago. When you think about this day, where does your mind go? Oh, uh, to so many places, but how young we were. Um, it's, I have the chance to have four kids who are now the age uh, of what, of the age we were uh, 23 years ago. And we were kids. We were so young and so full of dreams. So I have a lot of tenderness in my heart, in my heart for what we were. And I'm still sad to uh, what happened and for that horrible loss for all of us. Yeah, in the days leading up to this anniversary, we have seen a politicization of this day in the cause around the amendment that the federal government's gun legislation and that C-21. Are, are you worried that the message of today and the memory of these women is being overshadowed? Oh, no, not overshadowed. We're not peaceful enough, I think. But by chance, it keeps their memory alive because we, every time I, in those days, every time I talk about gun control, I, I, it, I, they're with me. I bring them with me. I bring the memory of what happened with me. And I think 
Canadian can understand that we are not advocating for a better gun control for nothing. We are we deeply believe that that's we, what we have to do to uh, to keep their memory alive, to increase our Canadian the Canadian safety. I do want to. Yeah, and I wanted to talk to you about that debate. Paulie Soussevier has been a vocal advocate for gun control, and we are seeing a lot of discussion around an amendment to the federal government's gun control legislation. It would enshrine a regulatory ban on assault-style weapons by including an evergreen definition. Now, the Prime Minister says that legislation is being reviewed to ensure that it does not target legitimate gun use. What do you say to Canadians who worry that it's going too far? Those who are afraid the most are those who would like to have the right for gun. And in Canada, we don't have a right for gun. We have a privilege to use a gun and to be, to own a gun. So I think that a government for all its citizens has the obligation to, uh, th we have a right for safety and a government knows it. So I think that all of us, including Police Souvien, believe that hunting is an activity rooted in Canada. Uh, we, my ancestors had to hunt to survive and we understand that. But what we are looking at is not hunting rifle. What we are looking at right now and what we are talking is, is a ban on assault-style weapon. And I really hope that uh, the Canadian government, the Liberals, but also some parties in the opposition, that they will uh, have the wisdom to propose to Canadians a strong and clear and comprehensive definition of assault-style weapon. And what, what happened in the last days, I understand that we need to be more quiet about that. We need to listen to experts, but listening to experts, not just yelling at people uh, one against uh, each other. And I hope that uh, the, our representative in the parliament will be able to uh, have a wise discussion regarding that in order to create uh, the law we need to have a safe Canada. When you're talking about the, that discussion, part of that discussion has been in Montreal, a Canadian's goalie, Kerry Price, who's been at the center of this controversy for his Instagram posts about the gun control legislation. Now, he has since apologized for the timing of the post, especially because it has been so close to this date. Are you particularly worried about the conversation in Canada and how it's becoming polarized? I am. That's why I was talking about uh, being a, a bit more quiet and listening at each other. Uh, I understand that the way the definition was proposed right now, hunters do not understand them or have a, 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 it creates a confusion regarding what kind of uh, uh, rifles are in the list or out of the list. So we will have to uh, to listen to each other in order to to have a very good definition. But we will stand our position regarding assault style weapon. 
we absolutely need a comprehensive ban and a complete ban on assault style weapon with a mandatory buyback of those weapons. Uh, we owe it to those who died on 33 years ago and that fight is the first fight of students and of family and we will be there till we have it. It's important but banning assault style weapon is not banning the hunting rifles. Nathalie Provo, survivor of the Polytechnic mass shooting and a spokesperson for Police Sousouvien. Thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you. And we want to take you to Montreal now for the annual vigil in the memory of those 14 women who were brutally gunned down 33 years ago simply because of their gender and because they were engineering students. Let's listen in here. Nathalie Croteau. Barbara Daigneault. Anne-Marie Edward. Maude Aviernik. Barbara Klushnik Vidaevich. Marise Lagagnère. Marise Leclerc. Anne-Marie Lemay. Sonia Pultier. Michel Richard. Annie Santarno. Annie Turcotte. Billions of dollars have gone or may have gone to ineligible recipients. To preserve the integrity and fairness of Canada's tax system, the government is required under current legislation to take action. If it chooses a different approach, then it must be clear and transparent with Canadians. And that was Auditor General Karen Hogan on her new COVID-19 audits, $4.6 billion. That's how much the AG found the government overpaid to Canadians in their pandemic benefits. So what does the government plan on doing to recuperate the money? Let's bring in MPs to weigh in on the AG's reports today. Liberal Employment Parliamentary Secretary Eric Kuzmircek, Conservative Finance Critic Jazraj Singh Hallen, and NDP Finance Critic Daniel Blakey. Nice to have you all here. Mr. Kuzmircek, I wanted to ask you, the Auditor General gave the government some praise for getting money out the door to Canadians very, very quickly, but said there weren't enough controls in place to prevent something like this. How do you respond to that? And should the system have been built better at the time? 
Well, that's a great question. And, and I can tell you that right off the bat, uh, we really thank uh, the Auditor General for the tremendous work that uh, that she's done in, in her reporting. And, and we re- agree with the recommendations that, we, that she brought forward. But she also validates uh, what was really the number one goal uh, of this government during the pandemic, uh, which is that uh, these programs that we rolled out, and there was about $116 billion across the multiple programs that were rolled out, whether it's the wage subsidy, whether it's the Canada Recovery Benefit or, or CERB, it saved lives. Not only did it save lives, it, it saved businesses, it saved Canadian livelihoods, and it kept hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Canadians from falling into poverty. And that's something that the Auditor General had recognized in her report. And we were upfront with Canadians from the very beginning, which is that we knew that the verification was something that was going to happen sort of as, as point number two after the fact. We knew that getting money out the door into Canadians' pockets was really our number one priority as soon as possible because we knew that lives and livelihoods were at risk. Uh, And so right now is when the the post-verification is taking place right now. And I can tell you that out of the $4.6 billion that the Auditor General has uh, pointed as as overpayment, about $3.1 billion of that falls into what we refer to as advanced payment. This was when, uh, this was funding that we wanted to get out the door as quickly as possible. It was attestation-based. And I can tell you that out of that $3.1 billion of those advanced payments, close to half of that has already been recovered, about $1.35 billion. And so both ESDC and CRA are working together uh, on that post-verification that's taking place right now uh, to recoup some of that funding that was um, overpaid. I want to ask uh, Mr. Allen now about the rest of it. What do you want to see from this government in a road to recovering this money? Well, thank you, Michael. And what I'll say is that the Auditor General was very clear and confirmed what the Conservatives were saying for years, that wasteful spending without any checks and balances have contributed to liberal inflation. And that was clear to see in the report. Uh, We agree with the Auditor General. There needs to be more transparency, which she said in her report, the Liberal government uh, lacks transparency, which lacks accountability as well. And that includes controls that need to be seen in there. Because the and and the, she also made it very clear in her report that the the liberal government continues to use the same procedure mm-hmm. on current and future programs, and she again said that even those programs they lack any type of control and they lack any type of transparency. So we agree with her that there needs to be an investigation done for the money that Canadians are on the hook for by liberal mismanagement. Uh, you say liberal mismanagement, but it was the Conservatives who pushed for an increase to the wage subsidy. So. Can you not take a bit of criticism for that as well? We, we will always support Canadians, but the mismanagement, let's be clear, is on the Liberals. If the Liberals mismanage these programs, which is highlighted in the... But you said inflationary spending, and the Conservatives were the party that said you need to increase the wage benefit. I, I, I'm just asking because, you know, I mean, if you guys asked for the, that amount to be boosted up, do you not take a little bit of criticism for that as well? Uh, well, I mean, the PBO was also clear that out of the money that was spent inside of the pandemic... 40% of it was not COVID-related. And now we're seeing by the Auditor General's report that there was mismanagement that was done by the Liberals. Uh, you know, again, we are always in support of supporting Canadians. The Liberals were in charge of ma- monitoring those programs. They failed to do it then, according to the Auditor General. Right. And they continue to do that in the current and future programs. So they have not learned from what the Auditor General has said. And she again said that they lack transparency, they lack control, 
even now. And that's what she wants to see changed. Now, Mr. Blake, I know that uh, Mr. Singh, uh, your leader, said it's very problematic to see that there was so much wasteful uh, spending. But if we go back to early 2022, uh, 2020, the NDP was calling for CERB to be given to every Canadian and then to do the checks on the back end. I mean, so can you really criticize the government for the way that they approached it when the NDP would have gone even further? Well, actually, what we were calling for was a guaranteed annual income model. And so that would have used the tax system to be able to recuperate those funds based on people achieving. But then you would have put it on CRA to look at that, right? We would have, but it would have been something that you could have done through your normal tax return because it would have been your, your repayment amount would have been based on your income for the year. A lot of the problems that are happening with post-verification have to do with the criteria that the Liberals set up because they deliberately chose not to have mm-hmm. a basic income program. They said you have to have $5,000 of employment income in the last 12 months. Uh, you can't Initially, you couldn't earn any money, whereas a guaranteed annual income approach would have been far less problematic from the point of view of people earning income. And once they reached enough income, then those support payments would be clawed back through the tax system. So I do think that it would have been much simpler to go with what New Democrats were, ag- were, were advocating for. That was part of why we were advocating for it. Also because we do believe in a basic income and it's something like we'd like to see implemented right. on a go-forward basis. It was an opportunity to set up that, that uh, infrastructure. There are some things I would say about the, the AG's findings. But right. I'll, I, you know. I've, got, I've only got two minutes left. I want to okay. try and get to the vaccine portion of this. Mr. Kuzmirchik, if you can keep this quick. Um, on the vaccine wastage, as of May of this year, 32.5 million doses or about $1 billion still sitting in the inventories. I mean, that's not a good thing, is it? Well, you know what? We, uh, we wanted to make sure, number one priority was to make sure that the health and safety of Canadians was, was protected. Uh, and that's why we signed multiple contracts with multiple vaccine producers. We didn't know which one we were going to hit on. And at the time, keep with, in with mind, all due respect, early, that was at the beginning. How do you still have, yes. how do you still have a billion dollars worth of vaccines sitting in storage? Well, again, you know, global demand has changed since the beginning of the pandemic as well, too. We've seen vaccination rates dip uh, as well, uh, not just in Canada, but across the world as well. But the number one thing that, that to keep in mind as well, too, Canada had the highest vaccination rate, one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. We succeeded in keeping Canadians safe, um, uh, not just uh, not just here in Canada, but relative to other countries as well, too, including our neighbors uh, to the south, the U.S., which actually had manufacturing capacity at the very beginning. And so uh, we made sure that we got as much vaccines into the country as possible, uh, made sure we protected Canadians. That was a number one priority. And I can tell you that we succeeded. And that was our number one focus. And to Mr. Hallen, I want to ask you about that wastage. Are you concerned about that, considering that there, there was that big global waste, a uh, global, global race, I should say? Well, what, what we've seen is the liberal legacy of mismanagement continues. We saw that in the AG's report. She also said that there was the, the problem was that they had the ability to track, but they failed in doing that. Mm-hmm. And that's what caused the mismanagement that took place. They weren't able to, they were tracking things on spreadsheets, which was very inefficient. And, and at the end of the day, Again, taxpayers on the hook because of liberal failures of mismanagement. Mr. Blake, it doesn't make any sense to you that this many doses are sitting in storage to be wasted. No, it doesn't. And I think particularly if you consider that Canada was was the first developed country to go to COVAX and take vaccines out of that system that was designed to deliver vaccines to places in the world that really needed assistance, mm-hmm. I think I think history will uh, will look poorly on Canada's role uh, in disseminating vaccines uh, globally. Um, 
given how much waste there actually was. Yeah. Mr. Blakey, Mr. Helen, appreciate you guys being in studio once again. We may set up some cots for you to be back tomorrow. Mr. Um, Eric uh, Kuzmirchik, thank you for joining us uh, via Zoom. We appreciate this. Winnipeg reels from the alleged murder of four Indigenous women. And now, a devastating update in the investigation. CTV's Jill Makishon has the latest. Stay with us here on PowerPlay. Winnipeg police say there's no hope of successfully recovering the victims of an alleged serial killer from a landfill. Police announced last week that four Indigenous women were killed by an alleged serial killer between March and May of this year. Police found partial remains of one woman, Rebecca Cantois, in a landfill in Winnipeg. The remains of the other victims are believed to be in a different landfill north of the city, but police say the recovery of their bodies is likely impossible. If we were to search that site, given the compaction that went on in the truck at the site, the decomposition that occurs over time, um, I guess the question to be asked, is it, is it impossible? N- nothing's impossible. Um, but is it, is it likely that even if remains were found, that they would be discernible from animal remains? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question. Uh, this was certainly beyond, beyond the scope of something that, that we thought was feasible uh, from, from a WPS perspective. For more on this, let's bring in CTV National News Manitoba Bureau Chief Jill Makishon. Jill, thank you for taking the time. Let's start with the recovery. Why won't police search that landfill? Well, police really broke it down today with a a slideshow presentation showing uh, how they actually searched and found the partial remains of Rebecca Contois at Brady Landfill, which is a massive site uh, in southern Winnipeg. Uh, that took a number of days, and it was only her remains were only discovered because they were able to close down that site. They say uh, in five to seven hours after uh, the last dump trucks had gone, and they say a hundred dump trucks were actually in that site in that five to seven hours. Um, but they were able to recover her remains. But the Jill, how site the that's north of Winnipeg. Well, sorry, it's, continue. It's, I interrupted you. It's, well, the site north of Winnipeg, Mike, I'll just continue really quickly, is it took 34 days before police were even able to determine that that was a potential dump site and 10,000 truckloads of debris had been dumped there in that time. They said it was compacted, it was covered with soil, there was asbestos on the scene, and it was really almost impossible uh, for them to really recover any more remains from that site. Just so terrible. So how is the community responding? Uh, it, it, there's been a lot of anger and frustration. Uh, the daughters of uh, Morgan Harris, a 39-year-old woman who is one of the victims, uh, were on Parliament Hill today. And I think that's why police ended up speaking to media today is because there are calls again. They say that this this wintry dump site in the north uh, part of, or just outside the outskirts of Winnipeg, should not be the final resting place of their mother, that there needs to be a search done. And as I've just said, the police are saying that's really, it's, it's not feasible. They, they just simply can't do it. Um, and and they, the police chief said today, I, I can imagine the heartbreak and the frustration that these families are feeling. And trust me, we, you know, we, we tried. We looked at every possible way that we could do it, he said. We just can't. And so I guess the investigation just goes nowhere from here? 
Well, there are four um, victims named uh, uh, in regards to an alleged serial killer named Jeremy Skibicki. Uh, the last woman, the first woman actually from March, so it was a March to May investigation, the first woman has not yet been identified. Police are still asking people to come forward. Uh, they've, uh, they've identified a jacket that she may have been wearing. That woman, though, is unidentified. The community is now calling her Buffalo Woman, so she has a name. Um, and only the remains, uh, partial remains, of Rebecca Contois were ever discovered. Uh, the other three women uh, were believed to be identified through DNA. So difficult for that community. CTV's Jill Makishan, thank you so much for this. Coming up, the Auditor General finds more government waste. Will billions in COVID overpayments and vaccine waste erode trust in the government's handling of this major crisis? Our press gallery panel will dig into that next on Power Play. We're very interested uh, in the fairness aspect that the Auditor General identified. Um, but the work isn't done, right? We paused repayment during Omicron. We paused repayment when the Canada Workers' Benefit came out. Like, we're trying to work with Canadians in very difficult time. And I wouldn't mistake a lack of aggressive pursuit for not doing it. It's just we're being compassionate. Canadians got a better look at the federal government's COVID-19 response today. Two new audits from the Auditor General found the feds overpaid $4.6 billion in pandemic benefits and left over $85 million in COVID-19 vaccine doses unused, with more set to expire by the end of this year. So is an effort to rush out aid and rush in vaccines, uh, did that, you know, all of that erode the trust in the government's ability to handle the crisis. Let's bring in our press gallery to talk about it. Annie Bergeron-Oliver from CTV News, right here as a parliamentary reporter, and Bob Fife, Globe and Mail's parliamentary bureau chief. I'll get that out, I promise. So this was an unprecedented event, Annie. I mean, can the government be given a little bit uh, of slack here on this because everything was such a rush at the beginning? Well, I think that's what the Auditor General said in her report, really on both of these aspects. She gave them sort of a mixed bag, saying on the one hand, their rush to procure vaccines, she said was the right approach, given the fact that Canada didn't know which vaccines makers would end up producing a vaccine that was viable and that worked. And so she said that aspect was right. She also said it was a time in terms of contracts that nobody had ever seen before. There was far more competition for far more options. And so the nature and the expense was different. She said the same things about the programs, that the fact that the government rushed these programs, got them out in record time, meant that they were effective in that they got the mark, they got mm -hmm. the money to people quickly. But she said that, you know, maybe there could have been things that were done differently in the sense that they failed when it came to, you know, ensuring that the proper uh, procedures were in place to go after that money, to claw it back. She says that the departments don't have the staff, the resources and the plans to do that work that's necessary, given they didn't put any type of plans in place at the beginning. They didn't require proof of employment or anything right. like that. Then on the other aspect, when it comes to vaccines, uh, you know, she says that there wasn't really good data sharing between the provinces and the federal government government in terms of their supply and their demand. And that led to a lot of waste. So it was a mixed bag approach. It, I think everyone recognizes that this was a time no one had seen before. But I think that there are things that the government could have been doing over the last few months and years to try to get into a different and potentially better situation now. Bob, can we blame the government for flying the plane as they were building it? But at the same time, you have a number, they had the opportunity to put in checks and balances on the back end. 
Well, uh, they could have put in right at the beginning. I mean, first of all, hats off to the government. They did. Mm-hmm. They, they, this was unprecedented, and they put out a lot of money fast because they were concerned about the shutdown of the Canadian economy. But goodness gracious, you think you might have asked for a SIN number. Uh, oh, no, we're not going to do a receipts. SIN number. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, no, I mean, seriously, they didn't ask for SIN numbers. Right. So they don't know whether somebody actually had two jobs or was getting uh, money from uh, the, the government or whether somebody was legitimately out uh, of work. Right. Uh, and they could have been able to tell that. So if they had the SIN numbers, it's very easy to track the money mm-hmm. and to recover the money. You, you mentioned $4.6 billion. There's another $27 billion that uh, the Auditor General says needs to be investigated. Right. That's like normally the size of a, of a deficit for a whole year. I mean, that is an extraordinary amount of money. So, I, you know, I don't think they deserve to be criticized for this basically not doing their job. The one thing that I'm confused about is today, Minister Qualcho said that, quote, I can assure you we have reviewed all of the files. Well, if all of those files have been reviewed, how is it that 1.2 million payments went to dead people or 6.1 million to people who were incarcerated? So was every single file reviewed, as the minister said, or were they not reviewed? That seems to be an easy question, because if they were reviewed, you would have thought that some of these instances would have been caught before now. Yeah, yeah let's or, or think, reviewed uh, after. No, no, just think, yeah. hey, we're sending checks to Millhaven Penitentiary. Wait yeah. a minute here now. Why should? Why are we sending <laughs> checks to prisoners? Right. Does this not compute with anybody? Yeah. What do you think? Of the, I just want to ask you lastly and very quickly here. The opposition is very quick to criticize. That's their job. But at the same time, the Conservatives had asked to increase the wage subsidy at one point. And you'd also had Jagmeet Singh, Bob, who had said at the beginning of all this, just send CERB to everybody and then we'll figure it out later. Look. The government did what was necessary in a very severe Mm -hmm. economic crisis uh, and a health crisis as well. Uh, But there are sort of ordinary things that one would think like SIN numbers, like sending checks to prisons. Uh, I mean... You shouldn't. You don't need to be brain surgery to do that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of in terms of the the COVID vaccination stuff, uh, there wasn't enough um, uh, coordination with the provinces. But the main thing is everybody was panicking about getting right. the uh, the COVID shots. And yeah, there was some waste. But my goodness, uh, at that particular point, everybody just wanted mm-hmm. to be able to get their shot. And I, I don't think they deserve a lot of criticism for that. Yeah, we got to leave it there, guys. Thank you so much, Annie Bergeron, Oliver, Bob Fife. We appreciate that. Uh, we're just going to go right now. The Prime Minister spoke following uh, the vigil tonight of the Montreal Massacre at the Ecole Polytechnique. Have a listen to this. Continue to strengthen gun control in this country. We have done much, brought in some of the strongest measures Canada has ever seen, including a total freeze on the market for handguns uh, and a ban on assault-style weapons. We have more to do to make sure uh, that we are keeping those weapons out of our communities, out of our country. We're not going after the hunting rifles and the shotguns uh, that are part of the way of life for many Canadians. But we are ensuring that weapons that were designed to kill the largest number of people as quickly as possible are not available to anyone in Canada. This is something we all should be able to agree on and we will continue uh, to do the work necessary to keep our communities safe and to keep this duty of memory towards these 14 women alive. Thank you. 
coming up, Alberta back to the drawing board. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith's Keystone legislation, the Alberta Sovereignty Act, is already undergoing a major rewrite. Our press gallery will return to dig into that story right after this. Bills go through three readings for a reason. You uh, see the bill for the first time when it's introduced into the legislature to be read. That's where you can see if the actual wording of the legislation matches the intent. And so you talk about the intent of the, of the bill in second reading. And then if there are things that need to be changed, it's committee of the whole and you make amendments. And then once you have an amended bill, it goes to third reading. I mean, there's a, there's a reason why we go through this legislative process. This is not out of the ordinary. That was Alberta Premier Daniel Smith once again defending her controversial Alberta sovereignty within a United Canada Act and trying to draw out how she thinks the legislative process goes. But Daniel Smith isn't just playing defense on her signature policy. Yesterday, United Conservative Party MLAs voted to propose amendments to that bill. And those changes would give the legislation a serious facelift. The changes would see unilateral powers granted to Daniel Smith and her cabinet removed from the bill. It would also change the scope of when it can be used. And while Smith says she's okay with her caucus making those changes, the NDP says the bill should be scrapped altogether. So is the sun going down on a new dawn in Alberta, or is this democracy working as it should in Alberta's legislature? Let's bring in the press gallery to dig into this. Joining me are, once again, Globe and Mail Ottawa Bureau Chief Bob Fife. Canada's National Observer lead columnist Max Fawcett, and Melanie Parity. She was recently the Director of Communications for Aaron O'Toole. And she's the President of Texture Communications. Max, we're going to go to Alberta, start with you. I just want your reaction to these changes. I mean, what do you think of them? When I was on the air with you last time, I said that this bill was, uh, was like Daniel Smith trying to ride two horses with one keister, and I think it's fair to say that she fell off both horses here. Um, you know, this, this is... You know, she said that this is, you know, normal. This is the way things happen. Uh, this is not normal. This is not how things happen. This was Bill 1, her signature piece of legislation. Uh, she should have had everything, you know, the I's dotted, the T's crossed. There should have been no confusion. And when she was on her, her weekly call-in radio show on the weekend, she said that she had no idea how the provisions that gave Cabinet these extraordinary undemocratic powers managed to make their way into the bill. That, that is a, a remarkable admission of, of a lack of competence uh, in her administration and, and among her team. And I think it's, a, it's one that has left a pretty uh, lasting impression among a lot of people. And it's not just, you know, the Eastern media elites, as, as her team has been criticizing uh, the critics of the bill. You know, Corey Tanaik, who who's run many conservative campaigns, who's from Saskatchewan, was on CBC the other night saying that, you know, this is one of the worst bills he's ever seen. And, and that, you know, the way you fight unconstitutionality is not with more unconstitutionality. So it is not just sort of left wing academics criticizing this legislation. It is almost everyone from across the spectrum. And I think it's going to be hard for her to dig out of this hole that, that she has dug for herself here. Bob, what does this say about her political acumen? And not to say whether or not she's fit to be premier, but certainly, as Max was just saying, this is Bill 1, and all of a sudden, it looks like it's a major facelift. Well, look, it's laughable. I mean, you do not, no government puts a bill forward that is so bad that it has to be changed within a few days. Mm -hmm. She's right that there is a legislative process, and amendments are made to legislation. 
uh, and usually it's it's not significant or or can be significant in some areas, but it's not a major overhaul. Uh, and so what what's happened here is that she put something out that obviously she got somebody. Uh, maybe the janitor or something to put it together for <laughs> and and uh you know it needs a, a complete rewrite um and and the legislative process uh it, it what she's trying to say that oh well this is the normal process it is not the normal process that's not how it comes governments do not put out a major flawed piece of legislation and then ask the legislature to uh, fix it up in fact she's fixing it up already Right. Without even having the legislative process go through. Yeah. Mel, I'm going to bring you in here. And Max invoked riding a horse with two keisters. Bob talked about it being written by the janitor. I don't know if you can top that, but I'm going to ask you to try. I think we're all suffering from some collective amnesia here. It seems to me that everyone forgets the liberal, the federal liberals pandemic legislation of 2020 that they introduced that had massive powers, uh, including for cabinet to make all sorts of decisions that was resoundingly received like massive backlash from the media from opposition who said what are you doing this is this is an overreach yeah but and that they, was a that was a crisis time this is not a crisis i think that that this was likely written pretty quickly as if it were in a crisis frankly this after this leadership vote it, there's a lot that goes into staffing up your office that goes into you know, establishing what your cabinet's going to look like. There's a lot that goes into that after a leadership. I've, I've been through that. Granted, I wasn't in government. I can only imagine how much more work would, would be involved in that. So I, I have a bit of sympathy for how, um, how much work would have gone into this piece of legislation in a very short period of time. And so I, I think it's only fair that we point to other, other examples of governments rushing some legislation, making mistakes, taking it back to the drawing board. And at the end of the day, I think what's really important to, to recognize is Danielle Smith was out today announcing 5 million bottles of children's Tylenol that, that the people of Alberta are going to have access to finally after six months of a crisis that the federal government's only been able to secure 1.5 million bottles for the rest of the country. She's out there solving problems for everyday Canadians. And I, I think that that's that's the direction that her government needs to keep going in. Well, it, yeah. in kudos fairness, to her. Kudos. Uh, sorry, Max, before that, I was just going to say kudos to her because I think a lot of people need um, headache relief after that bill. Max, what I wanted to ask you, though, is that uh, part of the goal of this bill was really to sort of take back control of things like gun control, specifically the federal government uh, gun control legislation. So I wanted to know how this maybe sort of plays out in Alberta, specifically after what we're seeing here. I've only got 30 seconds left, so please make it quick. I think that that you know, the gun issue is is a winner for, for Danielle Smith in Alberta. I think there is a, a genuine sense of federal overreach, uh, you know, especially with the amendment that was passed recently on it. And, you know, as much as she blundered into the, the, the text of the law, which, by the way, she had six months to prepare and have been talking about for six months, uh, she may still uh, have set an effective trap here. Max Fawcett, I appreciate it. I'm sorry, guys, we couldn't do more. We're all out of time. Melanie Parody, appreciate it. Bob Fife, as always. And that is your Power Play Day in politics, everyone. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. We will be right back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night.